Welcome to this peer voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash MZU. This activity is supported by an unrestricted educational grant from Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated. Bayer has had no involvement in the selection of the speakers, the development of the activity, the agenda, or the materials. Welcome to this Pure Voice activity on advanced colorectal cancer. This activity comprises a series of five streaming episodes with Professor Tanyo Spakai Saab. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Well, hello, this is uh, Tanya Spakai Saab from Mayo Clinic, Phoenix, Arizona, in the United States of America. Welcome to this activity titled Expert Perspectives on Treatment Sequencing in Advanced Colorectal Cancer, Keys to Reaching Later Lines of Therapy. Uh, in this first episode, we'll review the current standards of care in treatment of advanced colorectal cancer based on available data and treatment options. This episode uh, will also provide a brief outline of the key decision points clinicians now encounter when sequencing therapies. When we look at the general treatment algorithm for metastatic colorectal cancer, now it's more and more segmented along lines of uh, uh, genomic alterations. Um, from uh, the BRF RAS wild type group, RAS uh, mutated colorectal cancer, BRF V600 mutated, MSI high, and drug fusions, and HER2 amplifications. So, all these are adding essentially uh, to uh, uh, picking uh, more targeted uh, therapies for these subgroups of patients. And then when we look at uh, different uh, uh, treatment options, uh, so depending again on the presence of a mutation or not, left-sidedness or not, uh, then a decision uh, making points regarding EGFR inhibitors, triplet therapies, um, and, and others as well. Uh, take, for example, the RAS mutated colorectal cancers, where oftentimes for some patients we proceed with full foxiri. Then in the second line, we're considering regorafenib or TAS-102 plus now BEV uh, as, uh, as part of our standard. If prior oxaliplatin and TKN-based uh, regimens in the third line, again, very similar uh, options. So when we think about our patients, uh, you know, more and more in the third line um, with regorafenib and TAS-102 now with bevacizumab, uh, it is very important to think about what we uh, uh, start with. First, the way we think about regorafenib versus TAS-102 plus bevacizumab comes with a caveat that they've never been compared head-to-head. -head. But what we uh, 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 know is that both have effectiveness. In my practice, I would proceed with regorafenib first uh, uh, with uh, essentially uh, a dose escalation strategy, and that would be followed by TAS-102 and bevacizumab. And uh, also, soon enough, we may have another agent called frequentinib, which may be added ultimately uh, to that sequencing. So the decision-making uh, points uh, for uh, uh, thinking about treatment uh, approaches in second or third line uh, really depends on what, uh, what patients received in the first line. Uh, for example, for those patients who had full Foxiri with their ASP mutations, uh, then you're going to have to think about agents that we typically uh, leave to third-plus lines, such as regorafenib, TES-1, 2-plus, bevacizumab in the second line. So one of the major factors that would determine 
essentially the placement of, of regorafenib would be patients who had a better performance status, uh, a patient who has uh, intact liver function. Um, for, for patients who may have experienced significant hand and foot syndrome uh, from 5-FU or keep cytamine in the maintenance setting, um, regorafenib may be a challenge because of the hand foot syndrome reaction. Not that they correlate one-to-one, uh, but uh, the experience itself is, a, is for the patients a, a no-go. Uh, for those patients who actually have had significant uh, 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 myelotoxicities, uh, TAS-102 may be problematic given its high propensity to cause myelotoxicity, and I would uh, you know, leave it to later lines of therapy. So when we think about the principles in metastatic colorectal cancer management, uh, we think now in terms of induction strategy, optimize systemic therapy, and then depending on, on the response, the escalation, maintenance, discontinuation, rechallenge, uh, more like a reintroduction uh, uh, for a treatment that has not failed. And then we have to think about oligometastatic disease, which takes us a little bit through a different path, resection, ablation, and others. Well, thank you for listening to, to the first episode. Now we'll proceed uh, with, uh, with further episodes discussing some patient cases. In this second episode, we will illustrate key patient-specific and therapy-specific factors which could be considered when choosing between available recommended later lines uh, of treatment such, such as rigorafenib and TAS-102 plus minus bevacizumab using a patient case. Uh, the patient uh, in December uh, 2017 received full free bevacizumab and had a nice uh, response and ended up on uh, maintenance therapy and then uh, ultimately progressed, went to second-line bevacizumab, uh, which unfortunately he progressed on very quickly and ultimately uh, went to regorafenib. And when, when using regorafenib, we proceeded with uh, uh, the regorafenib dose optimization strategy. So Redos, starting with 80 milligram on week one, then uh, 120 on week two, and then 180 on week three, which he appeared to have tolerated really well without any dose-limiting toxicities. He had some transient hand foot syndrome reaction, and very mild fatigue didn't limit his function, though. The patient experienced stable disease, and, uh, and actually, interestingly, his lung lesions uh, showed evidence of cavitations, which we think are uh, essentially a sign of uh, a potential uh, response. And the patient proceeded for about 14 uh, months uh, on regorafenib, doing great with excellent tolerability and stable disease. Unfortunately, then uh, the patient did show evidence of progression. At the time, uh, we proceeded with a trifluoridine tipiracil, uh, which the patient uh, did not uh, appeared to respond well to and ultimately progressed. This is a patient who's done uh, relatively well with, uh, uh, with chemotherapy and has uh, essentially had some prolonged um, uh, responses and stable disease and uh, uh, for some of his chemotherapy had a good performance status, well-preserved um, uh, function overall. And essentially, these elements of functionality to proceed with regorafenib um, before TAS-102. The, uh, the use of those uh, uh, 
escalation strategy is, is primarily to optimize and ensure that the, the patient gets the, the, the correct dose. And this patient, he was able to tolerate uh, uh, the 160 milligrams after the escalation, uh, which on the Redos study we've observed that was true for about, uh, about a little bit more than a third of the patients were able to achieve the highest dose. You know, oftentimes what I hear from colleagues is that, uh, uh, you know, they stop at the 120. In all frankness, it's, it's very difficult uh, to, to uh, understand uh, whether underdosing uh, does uh, remove any benefit from the patient. So my, my advice would be to uh, essentially aim for the highest acceptable dose for every patient. And for some, it's going to be 160. For others, it's going to be 120. And uh, for f actually some, it's going to be 80 milligrams, as we've seen on our study. Uh, and this patient did pretty well on regorafenib, 14 months. Uh, it is very intriguing. You know, patients with lung metastases tend to even do better with regorafenib. Uh, as, as correct trial showed uh, with radiocorrect showing cavitations in those lesions correlated nicely with drops in the CA. Although they didn't amount to partial responses, but there's definitely signs that these were patients who were responding nicely. Well, thank you for listening to episode two. Now, moving on uh, with episode three. In this third episode, we will look at uh, a patient case and discuss the rechallenge versus reintroduction decision point in treatment sequencing for advanced colorectal cancer, and specifically as it relates to chemotherapy. We will consider a free challenge with chemotherapy versus uh, to utilize a later aligned treatment option to prepare the patient for the next round of chemotherapy is best. So this case is a 60-year-old woman who has microsatellite stable and KRS G12V uh, mutation. And this patient had the diagnosis of stage 4 colorectal cancer originating in the transverse colon with unresectable bilobar hepatic metastases, no other metastatic disease. The patient was treated with Folfox and Bevacizumab for four months with a partial response. She was then placed on maintenance capecitabine. Now, she had hepatic progression following six months of maintenance therapy, but no other extrahepatic disease. At that time, she was started with onfolfiri plus uh, transarterial radioembolization with Y90, followed by the addition of bevacizumab with a significant radiographic response that ended up lasting for about eight months. The CT scan uh, uh, then that followed showed progressive disease with new omental nodules, unfortunately, uh, a more aggressive pattern. Now, the patient was started on Folfox and Vivacizumab and achieved the stable disease as her best response. Six months later, the patient showed evidence of significant progressive disease again and was placed on rigorafenib with a dose optimization strategy. And one of the rationales for, for using rigorafenib with a dose optimization strategy is primarily to ensure uh, that uh, patients... Uh, end up with uh, a, a more predictable uh, uh, outcome with regorafenib, as we've shown on the regorafenib dose optimization study, uh, which used a flexible dosing going from 80 to 120 to 160, that 
ultimately, patients had prolonged survival. This was one of the secondary endpoints. The study met its primary endpoint. More patients were able to cross uh, to the third uh, cycle uh, uh, because they tolerated it better and uh, they were seeing better, uh, better outcomes overall. The quality of life scores were significantly better in the dose escalation group including fatigue, activity interference, and moods. So overall, it improved all the, the, the endpoints uh, uh, that, that were planned to be, to be looked at, including, most importantly, quality of life, and there were less toxicities uh, with, uh, <clears throat> with the regorafenib dose optimization strategy. I think more, we're, we're going to see less and less issues as more agents are being uh, 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 utilized in, in the more refractory setting, like regorafenib, test 102 plus minus bevacizumab, and hopefully at some point for quintinib, uh, is it will continue to emphasize the futility of re-challenging patients with chemotherapy. I think it's important to introduce the concept of re-challenge versus reintroduction. Re-challenge meaning patient actually failed the chemotherapy uh, agents, let's say Fulfiri or Folfox, and then you're re-challenging them with that failed strategy. Uh, you know, previously it was shown that this um, uh, uh, re-challenge strategy is futile, meaning when patients progress um, on, uh, um, on, on treatment, uh, putting them back on the same treatment does not appear to help much. Uh, at least from the chemotherapy standpoint. Reintroduction is a, is a different issue. Uh, that means, you know, let's say a patient went on Folfox or Folfiri and then proceeded with a maintenance strategy uh, and then six months later progressed and then switched to the other chemotherapy. That patient technically could still be considered sensitive to the, to the chemotherapy. Let's say Folfox for four months followed by capecitabine for six months then progression, then the patient goes on Folfiri or vice versa, meaning starts with Folfiri and then Folfox, then you can re-challenge them with either Folfox or Folfiri in this case and not reintroduce it and not re-challenge them. Uh, so this, this concept of reintroduction uh, is valid, although less and less patients will see that. The, the next question, of course, is when do you reintroduce? Uh, do you reintroduce before other therapies or after other therapies such as regorafenib, test 102 and others? And the, the answer is uh, in my clinic, uh, uh, you know, I would rather go with uh, agents that have uh, proven uh, value in uh, these advanced settings before going to a reintroduction strategy, meaning if patients face whole fox for theory, regardless of the maintenance strategies and, you know, the desire to reintroduce at some point, I would rather go through regorafenib and test 102 plus bevacizumab before reintroducing the same agent. Thank you for listening to episode three. Now moving on with episode four. In this fourth episode, we will look at, patient, at a patient case and focus on the strategy of retreating patients with anti-EGFR therapies in advanced colorectal cancer, focusing on, again, optimal timing for the re-challenge and options for treatment prior to re-challenge. As appropriate, the role of serial circulating tumor DNA to guide treatment decisions will also be discussed.
So this is a 67-year-old uh, uh, female with a chief complaint of four-week history of altered bowel habit, diarrhea alternating with constipation, and then blood per rectum. Uh, past medical history was diabetes, controlled on metformin. Her social history, this patient never smoked. Family history, she had a brother with colon cancer at age 50. Uh, she underwent a colonoscopy, which showed an ulcerated mass in the descending colon with moderate luminal uh, narrowing and biopsy that suggested adenocarcinoma. Her CA was 185 and liver function tests were normal. Then a scan did show multiple hypodense lesions throughout the liver, the largest uh, essentially uh, uh, in segment 7 measuring 6.2 times 5.4 centimeter and therefore this was uh, deemed to be a metastatic disease. And biopsy of one of the largest lesions did confirm adenocarcinoma that was consistent with colorectal primary. So we ran a next-generation sequencing panel, which showed microsatellite stable, KRAS and RAS, BRAF wild type, and the tumor was heard to non-amplified. Patient was started on fulfiri and cetuximab as appropriate and had a near-complete response. And following 12 cycles of treatment, the patient did not want any further chemotherapy and was placed on cetuximab for maintenance. CT scan of four months post-maintenance uh, uh, shows evidence of progressive disease in the liver. And then the patient was switched to Folfox and Vivacizumab as appropriate with progressive disease after eight cycles of treatment. She had assessment of circulating tumor DNA, liquid biopsy, which uh, continued to show RAS, BRAF, wild type phenotype. And then the patient was rechallenged with Folfiri cetuximab and had a partial response uh, at first CT scan. The whole uh, area of circulating tumor DNA, so what we call liquid biopsies, is, is emerging as an important tool. And I think with EGFRE challenge has become a, a really useful tool. Now, we do have data uh, with EGFRE challenge that did suggest that we can still salvage a third of the patients who are rechallenging them with cetuximab as long as they have the right uh, 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 genotype. So, so the RAS, wild type, RAS, RAF, wild type clones persist uh, and no uh, uh, clones that are known to be drivers of resistance show up. That's the utility of this uh, sequenced uh, uh, approach with circulating tumor DNA. The ideal situation would be to start the patient or to check the circulating tumor DNA er uh, early prior to initiation of any treatment and then do it at uh, multiple points uh, of progression, uh, which is pretty standard now in our, uh, our clinic. The question is, and certainly the, the challenge is, is when do you reintroduce or rechallenge patients with EGFR inhibitors? Do we wait until uh, the patient goes through the agents that are designed for more things like regorafenib or TAS-102 and bevacizumab or ultimately frequentinib? Or uh, should we essentially start with the EGFR rechallenge first? And then, and then, uh, you know, proceed with Arego or, or Test 102. You know, I, I tend to favor first uh, going with uh, an EGFR inhibitor and rechallenge them because we do see responses whereby with the other agents like Rego and Test 102, we do not see responses. Uh, you know, is it reasonable to perhaps start with Regorafenib followed by the rechallenge? I mean, there's some intriguing data from 
from Japan with a study called Reverse that does suggest that Rego before cetuximab may actually enhance survival. So perhaps, uh, you know, there are, there is a subgroup of patients where regorafen at first before rechallenge with cetuximab would make more sense. More data needs to be presented in that setting, but at this point of time, I think it's reasonable to do Rego followed by cetuximab uh, or uh, cetuximab rechallenge first, uh, especially in patients who are in need for a response or maybe a little bit more symptomatic. Uh, then I would certainly re-challenge first. Thank you for listening to episode four. Now moving on with episode five. The fifth episode, here we will look at the ongoing research and put it in context with the current standard of care. So we have some really uh, uh, interesting data uh, presented over the last few months, including the study called Fresco 2. That's a global phase three study that looked at an agent called frequentinib in metastatic colorectal cancer refractory patients. Frequentinib is a multi-targeted kinase inhibitor uh, with a very strong uh, uh, inhibition of VEGF, but also hits other targets as well. In, in this study, patients had to fail uh, all uh, chemotherapeutics and, and biologics, but they were also uh, uh, allowed to progress uh, to, on TAS-102 or regorafenib. And uh, this was a study that randomized patients 2 to 1 to frequentinib versus placebo with a primary endpoint of overall survival. Uh, accrued throughout the globe. Uh, and uh, in, in this study, uh, the majority of the patients had some exposure to TAS-102 and or regorafenib. Um, you know, all patients had a prior VEGF inhibitor, uh, and those appropriately that needed an EGFR inhibitor were uh, essentially exposed to it as well. The study met its primary endpoint of overall survival with frequentinib versus placebo. Uh, as you can see here, 7.4 versus 4.8 months, uh, and uh, this was statistically significant in this refractory setting. And all patient subgroups did fairly well, and that includes those patients who had prior exposure to TAS-102 and regorafenib. That's important because that, you know, helps us in the sequencing pattern understand that, you know, frequentinib remains active post-TAS-102 and post-regorafenib as we start thinking about our sequencing options. The agent was relatively well tolerated. I mean, the typical toxicities that we see with VEGF inhibitors and multi-kinase inhibitors, hypertension, uh, you know, fatigue. Uh, diarrhea, uh, very little hand and foot syndrome reaction um, in, in about 20% of the patients and about 6% will have a severe. The other exciting study that was recently uh, presented at ASCO GI was the Sunlight study. And this, patient, this study randomized patients to uh, essentially TAS-102 plus bevacizumab versus TAS-102 alone. And this was a study that, uh, you know, was aiming to have patients progress on uh, a VEGF inhibitor first before randomization, so on bevacizumab. Uh, we'll see that uh, only three quarters of the patients had prior bevacizumab and a quarter did not. This was mostly a third-line study. Survival was positive, 10.8 versus 7.5 months. And this was statistically significant, which essentially says that bevacizumab adds value to uh, TAS-102 versus TAS-102 alone. It does appear that uh, uh, the patients that actually drew the most benefit were those who did not have prior bevacizumab. 
those that had prior exposure to bevacizumab tended to do a little bit better, uh, but not as good as those with no prior bevacizumab. That's important to keep in mind because that brings the question, you know, in, in, in a setting where, uh, let's say in our practice, where patients get exposed quite heavily to bevacizumab, uh, uh, receiving bevacizumab with test 102 may actually provide a lesser benefit than those who do not receive prior bevacizumab. And I think that's key to try to understand uh, the value uh, proposition of adding bevacizumab to test 102. Safety was reasonable. I mean, nothing unexpected with the, of course, added uh, toxicities that VEGF inhibitors brings uh, uh, to um, to test 102. Okay, now that we have all the this data with Fresco 2 and test 102 bevacizumab with sunlight, we're trying to make sense of how do we treat patients or how do we optimize the refractory setting. So when we look at the landscape of metastatic colorectal cancer, we have about 20% uh, uh, of the patients who will have a, a target but 80% of the patient will remain relatively without a target strategy or immune therapy. Uh, and those patients ultimately will be in need uh, for uh, an agent in the refractory setting. The good news is now we have three of them, and three of them that are relatively effective and proven effective, regorafenib, TAS-102 and bevacizumab, and then frequentinib. You know, uh, assuming that frequentinib will be approved uh, which seems a, reason, a reasonable assumption. And TAS-102 and bevacizumab is already on the guidelines, so we've used it in the United States. Uh, but I would assume that sunlight will open the path for uh, registration. Uh, you know, I, I, would, I would like to think about, you know, my patient who has a great performance status, good liver function. I would probably still go with regorafenib dose optimization strategy first, uh, and then could consider frequentinib uh, and ultimately TAS-102 and bevacizumab. And the reason I say that, although the TAS-102 plus bevacizumab, so sunlight data, looks very interesting, it does look that most of the benefit comes from those patients who have not been pre-exposed to bevacizumab. That tells you that probably uh, for those patients, which I still think would benefit from addition of bevacizumab to TAS-102, uh, we can still place TAS-102 and bevacizumab in later and more refractory lines. I think it's also reasonable uh, to proceed with regorafenib, then TAS-102 bevacizumab, and then uh, frequentinib, uh, given that the data from Fresco-2 does suggest that frequentinib remains active following uh, uh, progression on both uh, agents. Um, and finally, I think it's also reasonable since uh, to, to proceed with TAS-102 and BEV. wouldn't be my uh, preference, but I think it's very reasonable given, again, that there is lack of, uh, 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 lack of comparators or studies that compared all these agents head-to-head, -head, that TAS-102 plus bevacizumab would be reasonable. I like to keep it to later because we do have data with TAS-102 following regorafenib, we don't have as much the other way around, and it seems to continue uh, being effective. Other uh, data uh, looking at, uh, you know, again, flexible dosing with regorafenib, um, and this is mostly an observational uh, study where patients, a uh, large number of patients, two periods before regorafenib dose optimization strategy and after regorafenib dose optimization strategy, 
uh, just showing that uh, essentially the uh, at least for the dose in intensity uh, a little lesser with uh, with period B after redose uh, and 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 the relative dose intensity was at at a median of 0.506 versus 0.622, say, with, uh, with period A. When we look at the toxicity, specifically hand-foot syndrome reaction of any grade or more equal than grade 3, you can see that with the adoption of the dose optimization strategy uh, in, in that period B, there were actually less toxicities overall, but less severe toxicities with hand-foot syndrome reaction. The caveats of this, these types of retrospective studies that studying ergorafenib at a reduced dose may contribute to reducing the frequency and delaying the onset of uh, hand and foot syndrome uh, reaction. Uh, Signorelli et al. from Italy also presented uh, uh, their real-world multicenter retrospective studies. Again, another retrospective study looking at the sequential treatment with ergorafenib and trifluoridine tipiracil in later lines. Uh, of, uh, uh, of um, colon cancer, so in the more refractory setting. And essentially, uh, when, uh, when we look at the uh, progression-free survival and the overall survival, they appear to be longer uh, or more prolonged in the REGO followed by TASPONODU rather than the other way around. So the results from the study suggest that REGO followed by TASPONODU is perhaps a better strategy. Uh, and, 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 and certainly uh, when we look at the toxicities, again, uh, you know, not much unexpected here. Uh, again, a lot, a lot of agents, a lot of options for our patients, as long as you're able to expose your patients to as many of these options as possible, uh, then I think, you know, their outcomes will continue to improve over time, especially those patients with no specific targeted or immune therapy options. And I would like to thank you for uh, listening and viewing the, the program. I hope you found it uh, useful and uh, helps you with uh, decision-making uh, in your day-to-day -day practice and specifically for those patients with more refractory colorectal cancer. This has been an activity published by Pure Voice.